Dr. Jessica Hernandez is a transnational Indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. She has an interdisciplinary academic background ranging from marine sciences to environmental physics. She advocates for climate, energy, and environmental justice through her scientific and community work. Her book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, breaks down why Western conservationism isn't working and offers Indigenous models informed by case studies, personal stories, and family histories that center the voices of Latin American women and land protectors. In 2022, she was named by Forbes as one of the 100 most powerful women in Central America. She holds appointments in Sustainable Seattle, City of Seattle's Urban Forestry Commission, and the International Mayan League. Jessica Hernandez, welcome to One Planet Podcast in Business and Society. Padrici Wendell, thank you for having me here today. So Bruce, you've awarded Jessica's book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. Could you just tell us briefly, what was it that stood out to you and your jurors? Well, first off, it was a well-written book, full of passion. I loved the way she started out with an understanding of her parents and the troubles that they experienced in their diverse cultures as a way of preparing the reader for the present predicaments of bias and prejudice, and then also for all the future solutions she indicated. So I think it's a book about the respect of the past. It's about present predicaments like climate change and indigenous science, but it's also a book about future solutions. So that's why I was the finalist this year. And Jessica, just to share an introduction to Fresh Banana Leaves, if you could just set it up for us a little bit, the passage that you've selected. Yes. So the passage I selected is like the introduction to chapter eight, which is indigenizing conservation, healing indigenous landscapes. And it starts off. I live my life embodying my teaching my grandmother instilled in me that no matter which lands I walked on. I had to learn how to build relationships with the land and the indigenous peoples whose land I resided on to become a welcome guest. As a displaced indigenous woman, my longing to return to my ancestral lands will always be there. And this is why I continue to support my communities in the diaspora. However, my relationships are not only with my community, but also the indigenous communities whose lands I am displaced on. And this is the foundation of the work I do while residing in the Pacific Northwest. I strongly believe that in order to start healing indigenous landscapes, everyone must understand their positionality as either settlers, unwanted guests, or welcome guests. And that is ultimately determined by the indigenous communities whose land you currently reside or occupy. I think, Jessica, what's beautiful about the way you acknowledge your grandmother is very touching. And the notion, the way of categorizing it into different types of people, settlers, and then wanted or unwanted guests. Can you tell us at the very beginning, the disciplines that your work synthesizes? A lot of this awareness strikes me as partially scientific, partially cultural anthropology, but it would kind of be interesting for the listeners to know the fields you're synthesizing in this book and in your work. Yeah, so I'm trained in the natural and physical sciences. So my training is in oceanography and then forestry, which I completed in my doctoral degree in. And currently I'm doing climate science, which is very derived on physics, especially environmental physics. So I think that understanding the nuances and the current scientific data that's out there to kind of depict how climate change is in particular impacting indigenous communities and having that lived experience and the cultural upbringing of being an indigenous woman 
whose lands are being desecrated because of climate change and as a result, displacing many of our people into the global north. And we see how in the global north, immigration is treated as something that's persecuted, right? Especially given that it's considered illegal. So I think that my awareness kind of ties in that Western science, right? That physical oceanography, forestry, and climate science, and kind of brings in a perspective of indigenous knowledge, which I also refer to as indigenous science, given that, you know, it's very similar to the sciences that are taught in classes, especially in higher academia, but are often not connected because indigenous knowledges are not data-driven, numerical data-driven, like most scientific data. In my 67 years of life, I would say that it's exceptional when a scientist like yourself can be so relationship sensitive to people. So it's almost like when E.F. Schumacher came onto the scene in economics and wrote about economics or technology with a human face, I see in your work. So tell us a little bit about the National Science Foundation Award that you received and what does it entail? Yeah, so the National Science Foundation, their fellowships that are either granted to graduate students completing a doctoral degree. So for the National Science Foundation fellowship that I received, it basically funded my entire PhD trajectory, and that was to heal indigenous landscapes, so to conduct restoration work in Seattle. So it was working with urban indigenous communities, but also bringing in that cultural understanding of what restoration means to us in an urban setting. So I think that it shows how we are advancing that understanding that indigenous knowledge is important to integrate in the sciences, especially given that foundations like the National Science Foundation are starting to fund work that's within those lines. Our judges were proud that you won, knowing how competitive it is to get an NSF award, and also knowing that it was in a category called energy and equity. Was that a subgroup that you were working in? If you could explain, that would help me better connect your book to the actual research you're doing now as well. Yeah, that's my current research that I'm doing as a postdoc scholar. So with energy and equity, what we're trying to do is kind of investigate the social political landscapes that are behind the concept of energy. So we teach energy in classes, right? It's an abstract concept that cannot be perceived or seen, especially given that it's derived in physics. So what I'm doing with that work is kind of building a robust energy model that also accounts for the indigenous issues that are happening and are being kind of swept under the rug, especially in the energy industry. That's wonderful. I mean, the way I think of it as a person who invited E.F. Schumacher to the Cornell campus when I was a pre-med student way back in the 1970s and had him open my mind to a broader sense of science. I think you're doing that to your generation now. So one of the things I'd be interested in knowing, you know, the British and fossil fuels are kind of connected. We even refer to them as BTUs, British Thermal Energy Conversion Units. I mean, the whole notion of the petrochemical treadmill and the inherent technological preferences and imperialism of that, I see as connected to BTUs. So now you're having us think about that energy is more diverse than a BTU, that energy is something different. Are there passages in your book to help the reader get ready to these? It sounds more like a people-based energy and an ecosystem-based energy rather than just exploding BTU value in natural gas or oil. It sounds like you're looking at energy in a much more community-based way, like an EF Schumacher. Am I correct? Yes. And I think 
I basically touch bases on energy, but I'm going to be diving more into the concept of energy, especially my new book is Grounded More on Climate Science. It's entitled Growing Papaya Trees, Nurturing Indigenous Roots of Climate Displacement and Justice. But I think the whole notion at the center core of Indigenous science, which is not very it's not paralleling, you know, the scientific method that's very binary and very like you start your hypothesis and you draw your conclusions. For indigenous science, in the core is our spirituality, which kind of embodies that all oh, my relations, right? So all my relations also looks at and taps into the energy that every being also and non-living being kind of manifests in this world of all oh, my relations, our cosmovision as indigenous peoples. So I think that this book kind of introduces readers to the understanding of what indigenous science is, because, you know, it's not a term that we can read about in classes or learn in our medical classes or in our scientific classes. So it's kind of helping them understand what I refer to as indigenous science and how that's connected to healing our landscape, which in the Western sciences is also known as conservation, restoration, and all these concepts that are not necessarily translated into our native languages, but also refer to healing our lands. That's one of the themes that I really took in reading your book. And my wife, who also loved your book, and she was a publisher and an editor before we created this foundation. And when you mention spirituality, it seems like you, you understand that there's a series of concentric circles between the self and then the family and then the ancestors and then the larger cosmos around you. And actually that was lost in the way humans think about science in the last 200 years. It wasn't necessarily lost in the very beginning of the time of, say, Archimedes or the time of you know, Vico's new science. So I really appreciate the work you're doing. Can you give us a little insight into tales about your grandmother? Because you did write so beautifully about your father and your mother. Let me tell you one story of my Polish immigrant mother. So it took a long time. She only spoke in Polish in, on Long Island, and no one in my family had gone to college. I luckily was a basketball player as Mio knows. So I won scholarships to college because I could play basketball. And it was very interesting that I used to have a catch with my grandmother who would ask me to talk as I was throwing her the ball. And I was maybe 10 or 12 years old before she died. And my mother said, that's impossible. She couldn't have catches with you because she was blind. And what a spiritual moment to realize that my babci, as we call it in Polish, my grandmother, was blind, but she still wanted to have a catch with a little boy. It sounds to me that you had a very special grandmother and mother, and part of it puts you in touch with the power in womanhood. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story. And I think that for us who embody the spiritual relationships with our grandmother, it's something that cannot be explained, right? Especially in English terms. But I think that I come from a matriarchal society is one of the only indigenous communities that continues to follow a matriarchal society, which is different than matrilineal. It's like where women hold the hierarchies, where women also hold the political and economic powers or leadership roles in our communities. So with that our women are known to have this more empowerful intuition, especially as it relates to our landscapes, our lands, and also our spiritual components of the being. So I think that it kind of manifests in the teachings that my grandmother instills in me and many other matriarchs instill in our communities today. I think equally interesting, the story of your father and what he went through at a very young age, it's perhaps interesting to describe the origins of the title of the book. 
Yeah, so oftentimes when we talk about genocide, especially in the United States, it's going to something that happened in the past. But for many communities, especially outside of the United States, genocide is something that can be traced to our parents, to our grandparents' generation. So it's not necessarily that long ago. So for my father, um, he was a child soldier during the Central American Civil War that has been coined a genocide by the United Nations just because it targeted indigenous peoples, especially in Guatemala. El Salvador and Honduras. So during that time, he was 11 years old when he was forced to either join the military or join the opposition that was like community led to kind of reclaim back our lands. It was like a land back movement because a lot of our land was being sold to international corporations that introduced these monocultural agricultural entities like plantations, right? So we have these introductions of bananas, coffees into our lands. So during that time, my father, he was, you know, in his guerrilla encampment. He was 11, three years into that. He had built this relationship with this banana tree that was in his guerrilla encampment. So the military came and bombarded the entire guerrilla encampment because they were trying to win the war. And my father decided to do was kind of seek refuge under this banana tree. So instead, he saw a bomb kind of dropping on the banana tree, but instead of the bomb igniting and destroying everything that it came in contact with he kind of saw how the banana tree wrapped its leaves to prevent the bomb from igniting so i think that oftentimes when we try to explain that to western society they can say oh it's a bomb that by malfunction during that but for my dad you know there was this spiritual connection that he had with this tree that kind of saved his life and saved our lineage's life today so I think that I wanted to honor that tree and you know kind of reference it in the title fresh banana leaves because it gave us a fresh start and it gave my father a fresh start because after that he had to escape his country and eventually got a political refuge in the United States. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it goes to what Bruce was also saying, this like a blind faith, the ability to be protected, which you address in your writings and in your teachings. I wonder, as you know, you hold these as an Indigenous person, you walk in two lands, yeah? And how you reconcile this Indigenous knowledge and rightfully being wary of that knowledge being adapted or commercialized, or in the case, you know, GM farming in so many instances, and how that can also be adapted with other challenges we face, like our growing population. Do you align yourself with a degrowth movement or how do you bring those two together? Yeah, I think it's sometimes hard, right? Like you mentioned, because oftentimes, you know, there are people who see Indigenous knowledge or any cultural traditions that are not, you know, American in that sense as taboo, right? Because they're like, oh, it's not founded on any theory, it's not founded on any data, it's not proven to be accurate. So I think that oftentimes as an Indigenous scientist, right, I have been privileged to have worked with professors and scientists who also honor and respect the Indigenous knowledges that I also have to offer or bring to the table. But oftentimes, you know, it is hard because we are facing a climate crisis, but yet we have to hold on to that hope, right? And I think that hope for us kind of goes back to when settler colonialism or colonization was taking place, right? Because um, many people thought that our Indigenous cultures were not going to survive. And that's why museums have a lot of Indigenous artifacts so that they can preserve that culture that for them wasn't going to exist. And so I kind of draw on that probably our ancestors helped for us to still be here today, walking on this earth, 
And of course, one of the ways that Indigenous knowledge is passed on is through language and with the disappearance of many Indigenous languages, that knowledge is being lost. So are you a part of any of those initiatives? I know that you're part of this Mayan League. Are you part of any of those initiatives to record it in a more permanent way? Yes, I'm in the International Mayan League. So one of the things that we try to do is language revitalization, which is important, especially when we have a lot of indigenous people from Central America who are from Mayan nations and and also pueblos who are being displaced. But yet when they face any immigration policies under U.S. Border Patrol custody, they're denied basically language access to our indigenous languages and many of them don't even speak Spanish right because that's also a language that many of us have to learn how to speak in our countries and if we don't have access to the resources to go to school right we're not going to learn Spanish so I think with the International Mayan League we're trying to recruit and also teach our youth how to speak many of their Mayan languages so that we can have a due process especially when we require language interpreters in the immigration sector. So when you come to Albany, I hope you meet a friend that will be there in my place. And I wanted to tell you about this man so you can see how there are various doctors that we work with that are beginning to think in a larger way than pure science. Dr. James Kelly and his wife. James started out, like in my field, an environmental attorney. So he was very committed to suing polluters and coming up with the fundamental science that allowed the lawsuits against polluters. But he had a caring nature and he got a degree in physiology and has become a prominent sports medicine doctor who's actually helped my daughter, who's a doctor now. And I think you'd enjoy meeting him because what he's educating me on is this idea of wellness and well-being as coming from a larger tradition than pure medicine, right? That, that often the person who heals best and the person who gets better from COVID faster and more permanently is not necessarily just based on the numbers. And so this man is famous now as a doctor, that people come from hundreds of miles if they happen to have joints that are too flexible. And he teaches them through exercise with their super flexibility, which often becomes a major source of disability for that percentage of people who are born with that genetic disease. So I do think of wellness as something we need to think about to conquer the climate change problem. And I'm on a medical board called the Medical Consortium of Public Health and Climate that includes amazing doctors and business people who are about social change. So have you begun in your new book or in your mind to think about the relationship between the things you've learned from indigenous traditions and science with this whole new type of medicine, which is well-being-based medicine or wellness-based medicine, so that it improves your diagnostics as well as your treatment? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we saw, especially during the pandemic, right, that we're still living on. And I think that well-being also targets our spiritual, emotional, and not just our physical health. And I think that for Indigenous communities, that's why there's a lot of ceremonies. That's why there's a lot of traditions that we still embody. But unfortunately, right, and I think it goes back to what we were discussing, a lot of those things were persecuted especially during recent times. So we're seeing how even our spiritual healers are being targeted, whether it be, you know, by all right groups or other groups that do not believe that spiritual healing is actually something that should be allowed to continue to exist today. So we see the persecution, but we also the positive side. Many of our ailments go beyond just prescribing a pill because, you know, other 
when in the long term that can bring other things to light as well. And I think that it goes back to healing our landscapes because when we are in tune with our environments, our environments also support our healing, whether it be through the energy transfers or through the spiritual connection as well. I'm beginning to think that you'll find in your future many medical allies because I think the field of psychology, which was my first interest, and then now the entire field of sports medicine and even respiratory is connecting, right? We're beginning to see that climate change has a special impact on the elderly and the young with asthma. And I think that your work will help people realize the bigger picture. Let, let me shift a little bit to your thinking. You've described the spiritual background and the role of great parents and grandparents. And you've also talked about your next book and your current NSF work and your postdoc work. Have you thought about how yourself as a change agent and as a person designed to help transform societies? And if you do, I'm interested in how you think about your relationship with corporations, because corporations can both be a great source of funding. But in my career, I found they are very much in need of change management. They want to trust experts to come in to help them change. So have you had any early encounters? Because I wanted to make sure we didn't bypass the issue with corporations. Have you begun to learn that there is somebody that you can work with and help shape? Yes. I think in terms of like, do I consider myself a change maker? I think there is work that was done, especially by previous generations, older indigenous scholars who have paved the way for my generation to be able to be more outspoken. And I think that it probably is the way that my grandmother raised me, where, you know, you have to pay your respects to those who paved the pathway for you to be able to be here. But in terms of corporations, I think that it's important to find a common ground, especially as we are talking about national entities like the United States that are finally recognizing the importance of indigenous knowledge. So in the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for the first time, they actually recognize the importance of indigenous knowledge, which hasn't been the case for so many years in 2022 that they mentioned indigenous knowledge. For the first time ever, we're seeing a president that recently passed a presidential memorandum that is also recognizing how important indigenous knowledge is to manage our natural resources. So I am seeing those changes and what I see myself in, especially what I like to tell people is that we're in the gray area, right? Because we're finally seeing indigenous knowledge being recognized, but then in order for us to move away from the gray area, we have to train people to understand how they can actually do that, right? How can they actually integrate and incorporate indigenous knowledge? So I see myself kind of supporting us in moving away from that gray area and providing the foundations and the tools so that people like the White House, the IPCC panel can know how to move past just the acknowledging phase or the recognition phase of, oh, this is actually important into actually taking action, right? And showing people how that actually is done. You know, how do we integrate indigenous knowledge just moving forward? Dr. Jessica Hernandez talked to us about the value of indigenous science and her book, Fresh Banana Leaves. In many ways, her work is grounded in respect of the past and the ancestors. During this interview, she said, we need to remember that we will become an elder and an ancestor. So the beauty of that thought is conveyed in her appreciation of the past. But in her work, you see a very resolved advocate to break through 
the danger of past colonialism and the present predicaments of climate change. I see in her work a persistence and a resolve to beat back the dangers of colonialism and our past mistakes. So what I feel that's beautiful about her work is it's respectful of the past, it's insightful to the present, but also it provides you with the energy and the insight and the belief system to prevail with future solutions. So I would like to say that the phrase I like to apply to her personality in her book is it has both grace, force, and fascination in it. We presented to her on September 17th at the New York State Writers Institute before 500 renowned writers, the Bruce Piasecki and Andrea Masters Award on Business and Society. And this is an award our Creative Force Foundation grants for younger than 40-year-olds of social impact. Now, Jessica, as we become friends in the future, my hope is in giving these awards to the younger than 40 that we can share some of our knowledge and techniques. I've worked for five years for the top 40 people at Merck helping them prepare their carbon neutrality goals under scope one and two of carbon emissions. I know that there is science-based culture that would respect your background. Merck has invested in Africa in river blindness for many years. And I used to have a PhD from Ghana and Togo. River blindness was devastating because the money was going to the men when it was actually the women that were recovering the water with the guinea worm and all the problems. So it was a huge cultural tribal problem in West Africa that I worked on. But Merck fixed as best they could through donations on river blindness. Merck also has several hundred million devoted to a thing called Merck for Mothers. And it involves the problem of infant mortality in poorer cultures and how you can't fix it with advanced medicines. You have to fix it through a new approach. So I do believe, having worked for several different corporations over time, that some of them will be natural fits that could use your knowledge. And I just wanted to mention that before we go on to the great news that I've heard through the grapevine that several high schools and colleges are using your book now as a requirement. There are several high schools that are integrating freshmen and the least into their curriculum. And I'm learning through the invitations I'm getting to speak to students. I know that several colleges like UC Davis, University of Toronto, they have incorporated it in their campus initiatives. One of my main goals was to write a book that wasn't just scientific driven so that other people can also pick it up and learn something because we're seeing how our youth, especially in high school, can pick up this book and read it as well. Well, it makes me happy to hear that the great ag school Davis and the great Canadian school in Toronto has embraced your work. That's very good news. I'm wondering if we could talk about youth a little bit. I saw in your book indirect advice on how to deal with one of the most disabling features of youth, where youth can sometimes, no matter how bright you are and talented, isolate between panic and resolve. It seems like in human psychology, both panic and resolve are the two forward-looking emotional essences of the human species, right? We get into an open savanna and we see a charging lion and we panic. And that's why we have that neurological response to fear and flee, right? But the human neocortex and many of the evolved elements of the cerebrum, we've also become features of resolve. So when I gave the award last year to Daniel Sherrill, during my conversations with him for his book on climate change called Warmth, which is about thinking through climate anxiety, 
he was actually startled when I said, I think there's a deeper theme in your book because you're like a Walden. You're a great writer who's writing about issues that will be prevailing in human nature, like in Walden. And he was, you know, honored to hear it, but I think it's true. In your book, I think you're actually writing about panic and resolve. Am I making too much of that theme, or do you think that that's part of what you've done? In addition to making a book that anyone could relate to, you've written a book that youth can understand, that they could develop the internal courage to better manage the oscillation between panic and resolve. Is that too grand a comment, or do you think that's part of what you were after in your book? Yeah, I think that was part of what I was after, especially given that I was talking about how many indigenous communities are actively already addressing climate change impacts that are impacting their indigenous lands. And I think that oftentimes, especially when we live in urban settings, the whole rise of social media, we can, you know, create this panic environment where we're just being reactionary to everything that's being thrown at us, but we're not actually reflecting and building coalitions within the community on the ground so that we can also find solutions. And I think that for many indigenous communities that are already facing the impacts of climate change, whether it be in the state of Washington, especially with the decline of salmon populations due to ocean warming or sea level rise, or back in Oaxaca and how our indigenous communities are finding other ways to make and farm more resilient crops against hurricanes, because we're seeing a lot of extreme weather events, especially hurricanes. We can fall in that panic zone and forget that there are actively communities who are already finding solutions, but yet we have to go out in the community to learn about those solutions because those communities also don't have a phone or access to social media or Twitter to tweet about what they're actually doing, right? So how do we find that medium to use social media as something to use to amplify those communities' work while at the same time not falling into this social media fiasco where we're just panicking about our futures and not looking at solutions to actively. I want to thank you for that element of the book. I think that was another winning feature of it. Yeah, I was curious about this because I recently had a conversation about conservation with Kent Redford. He was discussing synthetic biology. You might know his book, Strange Natures. And because he's been so long in this conservation field and no doubt you know the organizations that he's led. Chairing for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, directorships at the Nature Conservancy and the Wildlife Conservation Society. But a lot of times conservationists might have a knee-jerk reaction against the idea of synthetic biology or GM, as we were discussing before. And yet you're mentioning about hurricanes and how can trees be made more resilient or some indigenous communities, we were discussing the Maori, and they have a big issue with invasive species. So what are your reflections on this, on how, while we want to embrace nature-based solutions, and I believe that's part of your whole cosmology, but there might be something of interest within the synthetic biology world that could help both in indigenous communities and just the conservation efforts at large. Yeah, I think with the synthetic biology and all those conservation practices, I think that's important to get permission from the indigenous communities to introduce those things. Because oftentimes what I have noticed is that as conservationists or scientists, we feel like we have the solutions for those communities. But oftentimes there are communities that, you know, their cosmovision goes against it because it goes against their tradition. So I think that it's important, right, to go into consultation with indigenous communities. But yeah, there are communities that are already kind of doing that. And they're finding more of nature-based solutions that kind of resemble what's being done in that synthetic field of conservation as well. 
So could you lay out your vision of land stewardship? Yeah, I think my vision for land stewardship is realistic, right? It's not going to go back to the way it was before climate change was a crisis as it is now. It's not going to go before colonialism actually impacted many indigenous lands. But I think with land stewardship, my vision is that the youth are also empowered to do that intergenerational learning and teaching, right? Because we often learn best from our elders, but oftentimes in school settings, we are only learning from the teachers. So we don't get that intergenerational approaches or relationship that's essential as we move forward, especially going back to the question as many of us go into panic mode. And I think that intergenerational learning, especially as it comes to land stewardship, is very important for us to move away from that panic zone into finding solutions and also finding those connections that are essential for us to steward our land. I'm also hoping that the youth are also more interested in going into the policy sector because we know that's going to be the ultimate driving factors that's going to make the ultimate decisions on how land stewardship is going to be moving forward. And I think that's through policy if we want to enact change. On the question of policy, I think there's a connection between the Biden administration's desire to increase the amount of preserved land. So roughly now in America, the administration announces that about 11% of our lands have been preserved either as national parks or military readiness installations. And there is a movement underway, and I don't know if he'll be able, you know, his administration will succeed, to make that 30% as part of the answer to climate changes. And so, again, the indigenous people would be key for that because you've been, in a sense, because of colonialism and industrialism, you've been often relegated to what now is turning out to be the most biodiverse and most important things to keep in a fixed preservation mode. So I do see over time, a union between the White House's interest in addressing climate change from a federal perspective and the role of indigenous populations in coming forward and saying, yeah, we might have been relegated to this remote reservation or this remote waterway, but now let us help and work together to make it part of that 30%. So I see that also as possible in your work. You refer to the ways scientists think that I want to extrapolate on because I think it's an important lesson to listeners. You mentioned that after they study and come up with their diagnosis, they declare it as the answer. And what I detected in your work is a deeper humility. Like when I asked you, are you a change agent? And you said, my grandmother taught me to pay attention to the predecessors that enabled me to get this form. I think that tonal difference is what's going to get solutions on climate change. Because if you simply study and then declare your position, the issue is so diverse with so many stakeholders, they're going to think you have a special interest. But if instead, with that humility that you're advocating, you listen and then you respond, that's going to be a lot more effective as a technique. Would you agree with that? I think so. And I think that oftentimes we fail as scientists to, in a way, humble ourselves because, you know, science has been formulated as something that's objective where we're not supposed to integrate ourselves or our beliefs into the science that we do. Otherwise, it's no longer science, right? It's no longer factual because it loses its objectivity. But I think that oftentimes for science, it should meet a middle ground of being subjective, right? Where we're also demonstrating that we're willing to learn as scientists that, you know, just because we remove ourselves from this 
experiment and it gave us this solution doesn't mean that it's the ultimate, the correct answer, especially as we try to address climate change. We have to understand that one size doesn't fit all because, you know, we're talking about different regions, different ecosystems, different climate change impacts that are already happening in those places. And I think that learning from the local communities, learning from the people who are already working on those solutions will be more effective, but that will also take a lot of unlearning and relearning for us so that we can be open to those changes and, you know, to furthering our conversation. So could you tell us about your mutual aid work as well as Pina Soul? Yeah. So one of the things that I do, especially with my small consulting business, because it's kind of hard to sometimes reach or fulfill everything that's being requested is that we lead a lot of mutual aid. So with those mutual aids, we're benefiting direct communities who are either needing support during that time. So for instance, when there was a earthquake in Oaxaca that happened this year, you know, we led a mutual aid to kind of rebuild over 600 homes. So I think that with mutual aid support, it goes directly to the project that's being done. And it's not funneled through other organizations, but it goes directly to the communities that are doing the work. So we have done mutual aids for when there was hurricane season, when a lot of indigenous communities were losing food source and that was a food sovereignty or justice issue. So it's a lot of community work supported, but through mutual aids is people who are donating to that direct cost. So we just transfer the funds over to the community that's needing it during that time. Everyone is concerned about the Amazon in terms of emitting carbon instead of playing its traditional role as a carbon sink. So you and the Mayan League, what some of your projects are and maybe around this and reversing that status. Yeah, I think it's very important, especially for those of us who care about biodiversity, because while Indigenous people store 80% of the world's biodiversity, 50% of the world's biodiversity is located in what's known as Latin America, and that's because of the Amazon, right? So I think that for us, it's important to also teach others and how can we provide those tools and support and resources that we currently have, especially coming from the global north to support that stewardship of 50% of the world's biodiversity that's currently located in the Amazon. And we're seeing how there's a lot of fights with energy companies, especially with oil, given that there's oil being leaked and falling into the Amazon. So how do we rebuild ecosystems that are being impacted by oil spills and knowing that 50% of the world's biodiversity is in Latin America because of the Amazon rainforest? Yes, we spoke with groups in the Amazon, like Gaia Amazonas and others. And sometimes as you're working with different indigenous groups, it's hard to communicate the fact that maybe you need to preserve these rights under an earth law. Like that would just be expected. Like we don't own the earth, the earth owns us. As you wrote about this kind of respect for mother earth and nature, that's not one that we can own. So you were saying about the importance of getting involved in public policy to lead change and preserve those rights. How do you work around that and those belief systems? Yeah, that's definitely difficult, right? Because as you mentioned, there is still this land ownership, right? That's even embedded in policy, whether, you know, for instance, whether we're trying to restore urban parks, they're considered the city's property, right? They're considered the city's lands. So how do we make policies? So for instance, in the city of Seattle, it's illegal for you to forage or pick any any fruits or any plants. And a lot of those plants, those native plants are actually medicinal plants for indigenous people that they might not have access to because they're no longer living in their reservation. They're no longer living in their indigenous territories. So how do we 
passed policy and you know there's been uh, more openness from Seattle Parks the Department of Seattle Parks to actually allow indigenous peoples to forage these plants because they are medicinal right it's not that they're like they're doing it just to kill a plant they're doing it because it's a medicine it's something that's needed for a tea especially for an ailment and I think that it's kind of opening the doors to those policies so that they can actually also incorporate those indigenous beliefs or traditions like how do we create policies that are not going against cultural traditions in this case and you've spoken and written and you've taught about how your environmentalism your conservationism is really tied up with your spiritual beliefs could you share with us some of those beliefs the maya shortia zapotec beliefs that were passed on to you through your grandmother through your father your family yeah, so one of those beliefs can be like whenever we're harvesting our foods, you know, it's important to also kind of think the spirits, especially the plants. We go into ceremony to kind of think our gods and goddesses. And for that food, we believe that, you know, the rain is also, a, you know, a god and a spirit that allows us to nourish our foods, especially in times when there's not that much food. So I think it's always being thankful for the food sources that are provided to us by our Mother Earth. And also thinking, you know, everything that went into that process, whether it be the sweat, the physical labor that some people also provided. So I think it's kind of holding on to that gratitude that fosters those reciprocal relationships, even with the food that, that we also consume and how that food, you know, going back to the discussion we were having is a part of our well-being and wellness. And how do we uh, manifest that through gratitude as well? Listening to this, what you talk about, I mean, you could feel the beauty in you and in your worldview. So I think it's spiritual, but it's also about how beautiful nature is and the things that we have. So thank you. And as you think about this world that we're leaving for the next generation, as you think about those teachers who have been important to you and your recollections of the beauty and wonder of the natural world, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Yeah, I think it's having that intergenerational teachings and relationships, right? Because we all learn something from our grandparents. And how do we instill that so that once we become, you know, grandparents ourselves or elders ourselves, or we pass on, how do we still hold on to have that impact right on the younger generation? So I think it's always thinking of ourselves as we're going to become an ancestor, we're going to become an elder. And how do we bring forward those teachings that were taught to us so that they're not lost, especially as we continue to face all these, basically these um, turmoils, right? Because the pandemic hasn't been easy for any of us. And how do we bring that forward, especially as we are still facing climate change on top of the pandemic and water crises are happening in cities where there's vulnerable populations and how do we move forward with those teachings? Thank you. Did you have something that was passed on to you that to make you strong and resilient in the face of challenges? My thing is, for me, is just looking at the pictures of my grandparents, because, you know, one of the teachings that have always been instilled in me is that when we cry, we're actually crying for them because many of them weren't given the time or the space to cry. So I think it's in a way... I embody that sometimes even through just crying because many of them had to be strong all of their lives to continue on. And how do we cry so that they can also be relieved from some of the suffering that they actually faced during that time? So for me, it's just going into crying to kind of heal them as I heal myself as well. 
Indeed, that's that inner rain that, that heals us and is not a sign of weakness, but of resilience. So thank you, Jessica Hernandez, for sharing with us the important contributions of Indigenous science, knowledge, and culture, and for all you've done to promote intergenerational awareness and helping us understand that we are part of nature. We don't own it. We're all connected. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and Business and Society. Thank you all for having me here today, and it was nice meeting you all. And I hope that you know, this teaches someone something. So thank you again. I wanted to say, keep up the good work, Dr. Hernandez. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks. you, Mia. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jessica, both for your valuable insights. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Amy Highsmith. Digital Media Coordinator was Doug Evans. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.